Welcome to the Hertie School of Governance. The Hertie School. Hertie School. Berlin needs a globally visible public policy school. As a school of governance, we see our mission in fostering these important discussions. You're listening to a podcast brought to you by the Hertie School of Governance in Berlin. Hi. <laughs> this is loud. Uh, good evening, everybody. My name is Paulina Graev, and I'm the executive editor of the Governance Post. Uh, and if you weren't aware, this is uh, the latest edition of the Governance Post event series. Um, I would like to thank the European Horizons Club here in Berlin for organizing this wonderful event, uh, which I'm sure would be a very interesting panel. Um, and I have to say, when we first uh, sat down, my co-editor, Toby, and the communications team here at Herdy, and reviewed all the proposals that we gathered for this event series. Every semester, we uh, opened a stage for uh, student submissions, ideas that students might have for such an event. Um, and this was a very easy choice. Uh, also because of, of course, the timing uh, of this event, uh, but also because I think it captures the spirit of the governance post. Uh, as the student publication of Herdy, we really try to uh, show what is interesting to students, what students think, what they, how they view the world, and what they think needs to be changed, uh, which I think very much what this event is going to be about. Uh, funny enough, just two weeks ago, we published an article about... Uh, um, civil movements on the rise, like Fridays for Future, um, that the author is linked to a crisis in uh, parliamentarism and saying that this is an actual opportunity for young people. The bottom line of the article was that if you want to effect change, maybe becoming a parliament member is no longer the way to go. Um, and this is why I find it particularly fascinating to see here four people uh, that still believe in this, uh, in this path. So I'm looking, I very much look forward to hearing what you have to say and how do you intend to use that platform in order to affect change. Thank you very much and enjoy the panel. So uh, before we actually start, just a quick uh, word from me. Uh, my name is Johannes Liebig and it's my privilege and uh, pleasure uh, to speak on behalf of the student think tank, um, Paulina just introduced, European Horizons. Um, we are delighted um, to have you with us to participate in this governance post-event uh, on really the young vision for Europe. Um, especially thank you to our panelists, uh, Hannah, Wojtek, Marco and Caroline, um, since like some of you went a long way to came, come to this uh, student-led event. Um, so European Horizons is really a global student-led policy incubator um, whose mission is really to give young people a voice in transforming uh, Europe and bring forward the European integration. Um, the Berlin chapter actually was just uh, founded pretty recently uh, in 2016 and just moved last year to the Hertie School. So um, once again, before I hand over to Kate and Sophia, uh, we are really happy to um, have you with us for this event, our first event uh, at Herti from your European Horizons. And as Polina just said, I'm really much looking forward to this discussion and uh, happy to have you here. Yeah, thanks. Yes, can you hear me? Okay, so um, I guess you heard the European elections are coming, um, and <laughs> polls suggest that May's European Parliament election will actually 
deliver chaotic results. We see major gains for far-right and populist parties. We also, that would mean that pro-European parties will have to reach much wider to actually achieve reform. Also now Brexit has added more volatility to the mix and um, it should have already left the European Union but may now find itself actually participating in the elections, adding a further um, component. So what is actually at stake in the European Parliament elections? Um, we have around 705 MEPs, well, with the UK, that would actually be 751, um, 27 to 28 countries, 512 million people um, living in Europe, and 66% of these intend to vote in the elections. 17.6% of them are between 15 and 29, so those, um, and maybe also a bit further up, um, are the ones we're talking about. The EU holds 21.8% of the world GDP and in 2014 was responsible for 3.6 gigaton of CO2 emissions. <laughs> um, before we start, um, should we have the candidates introduce yeah, themselves? So, uh, it would be great if the candidates would introduce uh, yourselves really quickly. So tell us uh, your party, the country you're from, uh, your age and your brief background and your favorite drink. Okay, well, uh, hello, I'm uh, Marco Candela, I come from, from Spain. Um, I'm with the Podemos party and uh, I'm a candidate for the European Parliament. Um, during the last legislature I was, uh, I was, I was a member of the, um, the regional parliament in Madrid. Um, and um, before that I worked with social movements, uh, with, housing, um, with, with housing problems in general and, uh, and evictions in, in particular. Um, so my background is uh, related with uh, basically bringing the demands of social movements, especially the ones related to housing in Spain, which is a very big issue, to uh, to the institution. And this is the same thing we plan to do as a, as Podemos Party to um, to the European elections. And my favorite drink, and I'm not saying this because I'm in Germany, but uh, is by far beer. <laughs> Hello everybody, um, I am Hannah from the German Green Party, so I didn't have to go that far to come here. I actually live in Berlin-Lichtenberg, where I did um, local politics for a long time. Uh, my professional background, I have a PhD in Peace and Conflict Studies. I did field work in the Philippines and in Liberia until I think five years ago. Um, I was working as Chief of Staff in the Bundestag for the Speaker of Foreign Policy of the Green Party, Omid Nuripur, so some may know him. Um, I left about three years ago and since then I'm doing, to earn money, I'm doing, um, I'm working as a political strategist, in, also in communication and I'm doing politics, especially on the local level. This time I'm running um, for the European Parliament and as you may expect, I will mainly work on human rights, so the protection of human rights, especially as um, it's getting much tougher in many countries for human rights activists and on the um, common foreign and security policy. And my favorite drink is gin with a slight touch of tonic. Hi, my name is uh, Wojtěch Weiss. Uh, I'm from Czech Republic. It was not so far for me as well because it's just four hours by train, so <laughs> it's closer than from the other parts of Germany. And I'm from uh, a politi political party which is called Top 09. If I should introduce the political party, uh, the closest party from Germany would be CDU. 
However, we have just 7% uh, or maybe now even 5% uh, in the elections. So it's not so popular as here. And I'm a lawyer, so I studied the Faculty of Law at uh, Charles University in Prague. And my favorite drink is uh, probably beer and uh, gin and tonic as well. <laughs> Hi. Is it working? Yeah. Uh, hi, I'm Caroline Fleur. I'm from Hanover. I just turned 25 and I'm running for the German chapter for the Pan-European Party Vault. Uh, we formed as a Pan-European movement and party two years ago. In Germany, we formed a party ex exactly a year ago, I think. And uh, initially I studied in the Netherlands, um, governance, economics and development. And then during my study, I started a fair fashion startup in Kenya um, and I sell, sell the products in Europe. And I joined Vault, I think, yeah, half a year ago, actually, only. And I'm very much involved in um, running the campaign on, at the German level and, um, yeah, running as a candidate for the European Parliament. And my favorite drink, oh, it depends where I am, but, and it depends what time of the year it is, but right now it's probably Apro Spritz because summer's coming. <laughs> okay, um, our first question will regard voting turnout, but before we ask the candidates, we'll give you some input first. Um, so as you can see, the um, election turnout by country is very different. We have high turnout rates, for example, in Belgium. And if we go to the next slide, we can also see that voting turnout has steadily decreased over the years. The next slide, <laughs> um, you can also see the last elections um, by country for um, yes, different age groups. On the right, you can see the um, age group 18 to 24, and then on the left side, the general election turnout. So you can see that the youth um, turnout rates are actually much lower. So to give you some numbers, um, the lowest ever turnout rate last year generally was 42 uh, 0.61%. And for voters aged 18 to 24, it was 28%. Voters aged 25 to 39, it was 35. For Germany and Spain, we are around those averages. For the Czech Republic, it's at 16%. Um, and the vote share for voters over 55 is twice the size, typically. So to start the questions, why is the youth voter turnout rate so low? And how would you address that? And maybe, Hannah, we can start with you. I find it a tough question because myself, I'm a political person. I have always been voting, so I'm I'm still still trying to make sense of it. I think, I mean, one aspect is mobility for sure. If you don't live in your village and you are there and then there's the voting and then your family and everybody else is voting and it's a traditional thing on Sunday, then it's a bit harder, I think, the social pressure thing to go vote. Um, I have to say I'm a bit optimistic that the voting turnout with the young people will be better this time. Um, the one thing is we are speaking and debating more about Europe and among the young people, they are much more, they're much more pro-European if you look at the numbers, younger people, especially those below 30, because they have just grown up in a unified Europe and for them it's the most normal thing and um, I think most of us 
also wouldn't accept that others take it away from us, which is what happened in Brexit. I mean, the young people didn't go vote on the referendum in Great Britain. They woke up the next morning and there were borders. I mean, they are most likely going to be borders, but that was the feeling they had. Um, and I think that's a story we have to tell everybody because this election also is about a decision into which direction will the European Union move. Will it remain open or be even more open, solidar solidar more solidarity, more togetherness? Or will we basically go back to more national powers and maybe even see borders again? Um, so I think it will be better this time. One idea we are always pushing for as the Green Party is that people can start voting at the age of 16, which is very nice because then they are still in school, most of them. So they would, they could have in school um, education about election, like we have the below 18 elections where the turnout was actually pretty good. But if they are sensitized in school, and then also it's kind of a social thing to go together for the first election, and then, you know, it doesn't do much harm, so you can just do it again. And we are also just reminding everyone there that there's the possibility of briefal, whatever that is in English. So you... How, vote by letter? Is that an official... How do you... Absentee ballot, so that you can use that. I think many of you might also use that one actually more than going there on a Sunday. So we are doing campaigning just about the absentee ballots. This could be two tools. But I still find it hard to understand why so few people go voting, actually. Well, um when I when I was reading the the figures about the the voter turnout that were on the website for the for the event, my main my main reflection was that um, basically this was a sort of a generational break between basically between baby boomers and uh, millennials and Generation Z on the other side. So I so I started thinking how come there's such so much difference between the two the two groups in terms of uh, voter turnout. And so what I thought is uh, those above 55 years years old. Which have the highest uh, the highest turnout about fifty percent. These are people that were born uh, 1959 or earlier. So they basically lived through uh, EU construction. You were saying this as well. The youngest they take they take for granted the the exact the existence of of the EU to a certain extent. Um, those baby boomers also also understood that living through uh, the EU construction meant um, peace and welfare in a continent that had come out of two world wars. Um, but at the same time, in recent, uh, due to recent events, these are the same people that have been struck uh, majorly by the by the by the economic by the economic crisis, and have uh, started associating what they thought would was Europe as a tool for welfare and peace with uh, crisis, with uh, austerity, and with the kind of measures that that destroy that kind of welfare that they associate with the with the uh, with the EU. So, um, and also. Um, to a certain extent, those people tend to associate. I know, I know this is this is true in Spain. I don't know the other countries, but I I, I assume it's, it also happens. They um, they associate EP elections with uh, with national elections. So sometimes, if they want to punish their own government, they vote in a certain way in in European elections. If you compare that with the youngest, with the the ones that are 18 to 24 years old that had a 28 percent turnout in the last EP elections, um, they as I said, they take EU for, they take the EU for granted because they they lived they were born in it. It and they didn't see the dangers that we now, we now see for it. So uh, in a sense, they don't see the importance, the institutional importance of, of having the EU for maintaining peace and for maintaining prosperity in their, in their own continent and in, and in their own countries as well. Maybe if you ask uh, in general to the young people across Europe what Europe means for them, 
I'm sure the first word that comes up is Erasmus. I mean, that's the that's the main thing that that you know Europe uh, associates for with with young people. But of course, it's much more than that. Maybe they cannot they cannot see the importance it has on on their own on their own on their own lives. Also, um, because they are natural born let's say neoliberal globalization victims as young people they don't they don't see that difference in that transformation that happened in europe and so they can't really tell to which extent um the eu is uh in danger because of that because of that crisis but but again they were born in that system so they can't really tell tell the difference the difference now as as she was saying is that um with these elections, that changes for, for, for starters because you have uh, social movements with, with young people and the, and the real um, impression amongst young people that the EU affects them and that the EU is important for their, for their welfare in the future because it is precisely in crisis and, and being questioned. So I, I think the turnout in that sense would be much greater for, uh, for younger people in the next elections. Thank you. So, what do you think? Uh, why is youth turnout so low, and what do you think about lowering the voting age? Just to explain you uh, why the voting turnout is so low, especially in Czech Republic, then uh, the voting turnout in Czech Republic is low in general. It's uh, not just about the uh, European Parliament election, it's also about the national election, and it has uh, like a historical connotations because during the previous uh, regime, socialism, just who didn't care about politics, it was fine for him because who didn't care, this guy didn't have troubles with, uh, with the party, with the communist party, with the government. And um, this generation is still affecting the younger generations and that's, uh, that's what's still in the society and I bet that when you see the um, uh, sociology map of uh, Germany, that in Eastern Germany, it would be pretty similar to the Czech Republic, but the Eastern Germany has the benefit that it's being uh, affected by the Western part of Germany. But I've seen many ma maps of Europe um, regarding the GDP and so on and so on. And I see that the Eastern part of Germany is uh, in this uh, sociology things uh, pretty similar to, to Czech Republic. And uh, what's the key to change it in Czech Republic? It's, uh, it's the education. But pro the problem is that uh, also the education in Czech Republic is uh, sometimes I feel the same as in 1970s or whatever, that uh, the student is supposed to sit and listen to the truth from the teacher but uh, he's not supposed. The student is not supposed to be like really interested in the education. He's just supposed to listen. That's it. And the government actually uh, is not is not interested in changing it because the government nowadays is uh, pretty populistic, and for the populistic parties, it's not really like win to to have a great education of young people and to lead them to be interested in, in politics. So actually it's, it's uh, not changing. And the knowledge about uh, European Union in Czech Republic is pretty low. I'm just doing a tour during my campaign uh, where I'm talking to people about EU and uh, just the knowledge about, uh, about EU is, is just low. It, it's really catastrophic. And um, when you see the researches or polls, 
then you see that actually the voting turnout and actually also the popularity of EU is increasing with the knowledge about EU. So when the young people in Czech Republic actually doesn't know why EU and what is EU doing and what is it good for, and especially in Central or Eastern Europe, as Czech Republic is, then they really don't go to vote because they don't know what they are voting actually about. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that's it. Yeah, I think I think that's a good a good um, a good segue into our, our next topic because we wanted to talk about the attitudes towards the EU and the general popularity of the EU in the specific countries. So as we see here, the um, I can tell you what it says because uh, it's pretty far away. Um, this is results from the most recent Eurobarometer, so the European Union's uh, opinion survey. And the discrepancies discrepancies across member states for um, if people believe that their country's membership in the EU is a good thing is pretty wide. So in Germany, that was 79% of respondents. In Spain, it was 68% of respondents. And in the Czech Republic, it was around half of that at 34% who believe that their country's membership in the EU is a good thing. So this brings us to the strategies that uh, the candidates might use um, to to address this, to address your skepticism in general. And um, so Marco was talking about um, that, you know, people think about Erasmus when they think about the benefits of um, EU membership. And so making these benefits more more clear to voters and to young voters. Caroline, you want to start us off? Yeah, um, this goes right into the essence of vote, I think. Um, changing the attitudes towards the EU and how we think about the EU and European politics and uh, why vote was founded in the first place. And I'll go back to the young vote, voter thing as well. Um, just to make a bridge. I think um, in general, the EU, it's very complex and that's why people don't really vote or under, because they don't understand it and they don't really see what it does for them because the way we think about the European Union and the way we think about European politics or other countries within the European Union is very much framed by national politics and not on an entirely European level. But I'm, as everyone else has said, very optimistic that that's going to change in these elections. You can see it through Fridays for Future and through March for Our Lives in the States as well, through the Women's March, through the Untalba demo that we had here in Berlin that young people want change. And we were founded by three young people that woke up, woke up after Brexit and woke up after um, Trump and said, we need to do something. We need to change how we see the European Union. And they said, what... What we really need to what really needs to change is how we view European politics and European politics need European parties and that's why from the very beginning they found a party and a movement that writes one program that sets common goals um, kind of doesn't focus too much on the differences cultural differences socioeconomic differences but things that we have in common values that we have in common and um, Uh, values and problems that we have in common and how we can solve them together. And I think that's very interesting and very inspiring as well. And that's a huge reason why I joined uh, the party in the first place. Um, but I'm very optimistic that, that a, a lot of young people feel that way and are going to change their attitudes towards the EU because they grew up in a united union. And for them, it's very normal that you cross borders, that you travel, that you're... Um, that everyone should have the same rights and same chances across the union, I think. Yeah. 
I would just like, is it on? Yes, that's much better. Um, I would just like to add a few things because um, we are very much in favor of the idea of also trans-European lists, which is something we pushed forward hardly in the European Union because there was this slight opening to when Brexit, so when Great Britain would leave. There are about 50 seats, I think, that are becoming vacant. And we were hardly pushing that this would be the first idea of transnationalists, so where we would have really European candidates with a European list doing European campaigning as well. That was denied by SND and EPP, so by the socialists and the conservative parties, which I think was really sad. This would have been one opening, but I think we also have to look at how we are discussing European national politics. The first thing is I th we are having, we're discussing European topics in the boundaries of how we discuss national politics. So it's always the government against the opposition. It's always the same with the same reactions. It, there's also little um, reflection or um, intersection with what people discuss in other countries about the same issues. I think it was most prevalent when we were talking about um, in Greece, the financial crisis in Greece. So Germany was discussing whether we would have to save everyone with all our money. And the rest of Europe was discussing why are the Germans so greedy? So I guess the truth is somewhere in the middle. The German elite so greedy. So, but I mean, I guess the truth is somewhere in the middle, but we never had the debate about what is our common understanding and our common narrative. And this is just one example. The second problem is often we are discussing these European things whenever regulations have to be transferred into national law. But the decision then already has been made at European level. And then it feels like European is forcing it, the European Union is forcing it on us, which it isn't. Because if we had discussed it at the same time as we did with the copyright, the Urheberrechtsreform at the moment, we could have had an impact. And then if something good comes from the European Union, you often see that national politicians, whenever they transfer to national laws, they take it as their own great thing they invented. And whenever people criticize, but then it was the European Union. My favorite example here is um, Minister Spahn. He's the Minister of Health in Germany. And we had a reform of midwifery, so Hebammen. They were becoming more academic and they are getting a better pay and he was really patting his shoulders for making this possible, he transferred it into national laws two years too late, and it's a European regulation. And as long as we discuss Europe that way, we are act actually just building up and increasing this. And just saying we are pro-European in campaign speeches, but not giving a fair account of how European politics work and how it shapes our national politics doesn't help much. Yes. <laughs> yeah. You know, the, the result is even more funny when you realize that the uh, Czech Republic uh, is receiving uh, from EU much more money than giving. And the difference is, is really huge. So just, ju just like information for you that it, it's really weird. Uh, and where is the problem? Um, you know, uh, since the knowledge about EU is really low in Czech Republic, then it's very easy for Czech politicians, especially for the populists, um, 
uh, when they need to pass an uh, unpopular law, say that it was Brussels, and uh, that's the dictatorship of Brussels, and Brussels dictate. And that's really what's making uh, EU unpopular in Czech Republic. They call it Brussels dictate. And uh, it doesn't make any sense. It's not a dictate. We, 27 or 28 countries, have to agree together on whatever comes from EU. But uh, Czech politician says it's the populist that it's dictate. And the Czech mainstream is not uh, that uh, we are against EU, I would say. But I would say that the mainstream is, yeah, okay, EU is fine, but. And the but is problem. And the but... Uh, Behind this but is is the yeah is is basically the dictatorship. So as long as we don't improve the education and the knowledge about EU and how the decisions of EU, the directives uh, are coming or being passed, the EU cannot be more popular in Czech Republic. And uh, the second problem is that we actually don't participate on the European discussion on the EU level because, you know, uh, we were the Czech Republic, were the troublemaker when we were talking about the migration crisis. You all know it. And uh, the problem was that whatever solution is good, uh, but the problem is that uh, the Czech uh, Ministry of Interior went to the Brussels and he was just silent there. He couldn't join the discussion of ministers of interiors of EU states. He didn't have any opinion, nothing. We really didn't contribute to the discussion. But then he went back to the Czech Republic and he said that, it, that the, the quotes and that the solution of the migration crisis is the dictate of EU. And he took a pictures with some army equipment that he's going to defend Czech borders. And that's it. But we didn't participate on the discussion. We were just saying no. And with these politicians, you cannot change the opinion of the society about you. The key is really the, the education. And I think that uh, it's valid for most of uh, the Eastern Europe. Well, um, as far as Spain is concerned, um, the data you showed about the um, about Spanish people saying that usually, I mean, in general, that uh, Europe is a good thing has a, a very national um, aspect to it before, because uh, people in Spain associate Europe with uh, democracy in Spain. Um, in the late 70s, the first thing that Spain did after it regained democracy was was join the EU, and that was an important an important step to um, to materialize um, democracy in Spain. So obviously, people think it's a good thing, but at the same time, I always tend to say to, to think uh, that a true democrat should think should trust in the people that in what the people think, and the and when, what what you see in the statistics in Spain, apart from people thinking generally that uh, Europe is a good thing, is this approximately the same amount of people think that the EU needs reform, that the EU would be even better if it worked better and if it was more democratic and if it was uh, had a better institutional way of, of functioning. So, um, so you know, apart from, from, from looking at data of uh, what people think about Europe in itself as an idea, you should also look at the statistics about uh, what people think one should do about it and what should change um, in, in, in the EU. So... Um, in that sense, 
when uh, when we think about how uh, how the how the how how youth in the EU sees um, Europe and will answer to this to the to the call for, to the new EP elections and what the reaction will be, I think there's one apart from what we, we were discussing earlier about the uh, probability of a higher turnout and uh, more discussion about European matters among young people. There's one one definite thing that w that will happen, and that is that um, young people as digital natives will probably have. Um, higher discussions among themselves across Europe uh, and will be better informed and less likely to be manipulated about Europe as happened with the people that were uh, affected by, by propaganda for Brexit, for instance, or, uh, or for the rise of other uh, right-wing populist uh, governments across, across the globe. So, so I think that's a positive thing about youth as well is that they're less uh, likely to be manipulated as, as their digital natives and they're more able to contrast information and get the, the facts for themselves. Um, and at the same time, I think um, it's important, as we were all saying, that it's important to, for young people to see the effect that European policy has on, on them and that Europe really is something good for them. So apart from their being able to study abroad through Erasmus, there are things such as the, the youth guarantee, that's the, the policy of the EU, um, the commitment by all member states to ensure that all young people under the age of 25 years receive a good quality offer of employment, continued education or apprenticeship, within four months of becoming, thank you, unemployed or leaving formal education. So this, through the European Social Fund, supposedly, or in theory at least, um, the EU should ensure um, something for, uh, for youth after they leave, they leave uh, education or they become unemployed. If that doesn't go down to member states and becomes real public policy, then obviously young people are going to think, what's, what's good for me in the EU? But if we, we are capable as member states of making those kind of policies true for the, for the average youth in our countries, then surely they will, they will have a better idea of, uh, of Europe. Okay, so before we move to the next question about the projected results, we would like to ask you guys to get your phones out and to tell us if you have already decided which way you will vote in the next election. To do that, you can go on Slido, um, enter the event code, and Johannes has opened the question, and we are looking forward to see your results. Um, first question, quickly. Why the the code it says there under the Y five seven four? While we get your results, um, Johannes, maybe while people vote, we can go back to the presentation to the next slide, where we see um, the projected results. Um, because we can see some major shifts coming up in the 2019 election um, and we would like to hear about why this voting behavior is changing. Um, I'm not sure you can see everything, so I'm going to read it out. In Germany, the CDU, CSU and SPD are expected to lose seats, while the Greens, AfD and FPD are um, supposed to uh, gain seats. In the Czech Republic, the Yes, Pirate and Freedom and Direct Democracy parties are projected to gain seats, while the Top 09, Communist Party and Christian Democratic Union are expected to lose seats. Um, in Spain, it's the Spanish Socialists, the Citizens, Podemos and Vox Party that are expected to gain seats, while the People Parties, Plural Left and Union, Progress and Democracy Party are anticipated to lose seats. So maybe before we hear from you guys, what you think is driving those voting changes in your respective countries, 
and we can see the results. <laughs> okay, 50-50. <laughs> okay, so uh, seems like you have time to convince people here still on how to vote. Um, okay, Marco, do you want to start and tell us what is driving changes in your country? Okay, well, in Spain, um, the thing in Spain is we have general elections on April 28th, and then a month later we have, um, at the same time, we have European and local elections. So basically the, 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 the anticipated results are an exact ma match to uh, what, the, what the polls are now saying that the, the elections will be, the, the results will be in, in all major elections. Uh, also the thing is, um, Spain is also a prime example of there not being a real debate uh, for a European elections. So basically, when you vote in European elections, especially in this time when it when it it comes with all the other elections, you basically vote sort of the same sort of the same thing. The, there's one thing that could affect, and that's the fact that uh, having general elections one month before, if the if the um, the uh, the new extreme right party, which is called Vox, um, has great has very very uh, very good results. Um, enough to be part of government, then probably the reaction to that, this is a very Spanish thing as well, the reaction to that will be, okay, next time I have to vote against them or I have to mobilize my vote if I'm left-wing because, because fascists are coming, you know. So it's, it's this, kind of, this kind of reaction that, could, that might happen uh, depending on the, on the elections before that. But, but I think the... Um, I mean, I, I, will, I will work towards this not happening but uh the debate the, the debate um about europe i'm afraid will be will not be very present um in all the discussions about elections be because we have all basically all our elections within one month so it's it's going to be a bit difficult but we'll try Anna, your party is supposed to gain seats and how do you explain that and the other changes we are supposed to gain seats and i think this is due to two reasons. One is the issue of climate is, I mean, fastly moving up the agenda and I would say rightfully so. It's Fridays for Future, but it's also just the realization that we keep talking about goals that we want to reach for 30 years now, but we are really slow in coming up with actual reforms and measures to reach these goals. And this has to change. And the good thing for us is in Germany that basically if people think about climate, they think about the Green Party. That's an easy one. It's not that easy in other countries because I think climate consciousness is also growing in Eastern European countries, but it's not that much of an automatic decision. The second one is that um, for a long time, I think Germany was thinking in either social democrats or conservatives. So that was the decision you would make when you go. And then they would have other small coalition partners. And because of how society was changing after 2015 and the rise of the right-wing populists, so the AfD, the polls are changing, I would say. Because you have those who basically just want to roll back women's rights that deny climate change, um, that, I mean, you could make that, that are for rather, I mean coming back with borders, pushing migrants out of the country. And there the kind of natural antidote or anti-pole has become the Green Party, which is why the conservatives and the social democrats are kind of 
losing because their position is not that clear. Also because they are either in grand coalitions a lot of the time where you don't see that much of a difference between them anyways. Or we have these very, on the county level, we have these very various coalitions of three parties. Um, I think this is the two main reasons. And then I would actually say we managed to have a generational shift in the Green Party. So we have basically changed most of our leadership. They are in their 30s to 50s. And the others haven't. And we will see, but it's... Apparently, that makes us a bit more attractive at the moment. And if I look at our European list, when we're talking about young people in politics, I think seven, seven or eight of our people in the front 10 are below 40. That is maybe the most, um, I mean, the most uh, offensively, the most apparent um, way to show how, how things are changing. And... We are having a good time at the moment, but there's also a green wave across Europe. So we are seeing many countries where the greens are rising. And the more we speak about climate change, I think the more we are going to win. I have to say, I don't think that AfD will come out as strong as they are here with um, 13%. Because um, they have the Dexit, so the exit of Germany from the European Union in their party program for the European election. And this, I think, will not help them a lot because even people who tend to be not very pro-European do not see Germany leaving the European Union. If you really imagine it and what that would mean, this country in the middle of the Union that has all its exports going to European partner countries with the border, no one knows how you would build it up and protect it. I mean, it's ridiculous. And I think maybe 5% of those 13 will realize that in the coming seven weeks. Um, yes, Caroline, could I turn to you maybe? Yeah. Um, how do, where do you see Vault in, in this overall turnout? Uh, what are you expecting for your first election? And which party do you think your voters will come from? Oh, interesting. Okay. Um, I just have like a small analysis of the whole thing. Um, because you can't really... so we would fall under the category of others in Germany. <laughs> and um, we're very new. We're running in eight countries, I think, uh, for sure now, over across the European Union, which is quite remarkable to do that within two years. Um, and I always look at it as a whole. So not only is the AfD rising in Germany, but is our right populist parties rising across the Union. And it is a fact still that these parties are increasing. And I think that's the worrisome part, that, that they managed to unite on a European level to go against the union, but that pro-European pro forces can't manage to unite on a European level. And again, that's the reason why Vote formed, because they said, you know, we have to, if we do it, we have to do it together. And um, it doesn't matter if the IFD is going to, you know, I mean, it, of course it matters if they get more seats um, than in the last, last elections, but it matters even more that this is that this is a trend across the entire union, because that's how politics works at the European level. Um, and I think there needs to be a structural change in how we do how we look at European politics. And again, European politics need European parties just because of that reason. Um, we're looking at trying to get five seats within Germany. We need. 25 seats within the European Parliament to form, out of seven countries, to form an actual coalition. So under the name of Volt Europe. 
Um, that's probably not going to be possible within the first uh, instance, but um, I'm very optimistic and I think it's already a huge accomplishment that we're running in eight countries. And I think we have good chances in Germany to gain some in um, the Netherlands and in Bulgaria. So, um, yeah, I'm very optimistic that we'll do it. And then, you know, it's Rome wasn't built in a day. It's a long-term vision that we're going for. <laughs> Lots of changes in the Czech Republic with a view to the time <laughs> shortly. What do you think? It just demonstrates the change of uh, political environment in Czech Republic in general. And that's the same as you can see across the world that uh, actually the populist movements uh, are increasing and uh, gaining success. And that's the same in Czech Republic. You know, the people in Czech Republic, they are, I would say, tyrant of, of politics, tyrant of democracy, because in uh, 1989, everyone thought that it's uh, going to be uh, very easy and very fast to, to actually change the regime, to change the economics of the country. But uh, it's, of course, not, uh, not so easy. And uh, the people are disappointed. The pe people are disappointed actually by politics because they actually don't uh, understand politics so well. And of course, there is some corruption and so on. And that's also what's uh, disappointing them. Uh, and then uh, the movement, uh, which is called TS, came up. And uh, that's actually the movement of one guy who is one of the most richest guys in the Czech Republic. And it's just about uh, marketing. They actually don't have any, I would say, values uh, on which their politics is based on. Uh, it's just pure marketing. They do research. They see what people want to hear. And they just claim the same. But actually, it's uh, not as bad as it could sound. Because when I see Hungary or Poland, I feel like it's still OK in, in Czech Republic. <laughs> Uh, no, really, because uh, at least this guy, uh, he needs EU, so he's in favor of uh, EU, uh, but not so openly because people doesn't want to hear it, but he needs EU at least for his business, so <laughs> he actually doesn't want to leave the EU. And uh, the responsible political parties, like which I would say we are, like Top 09 and um, uh, the Green Party is uh, also in our coalition because we, um, we've made a very broad coalition for the uh, European Union with other central or uh, central-right uh, parties and with uh, the Green Party, actually with all parties which... Um, Which wants, which wants to do something for the future of EU in, in Czech Republic. But uh, despite this fact, uh, the popularity of, of our party is still lower and lower. Yeah, and now if we'll, we'll shift away from, from the national landscape a little bit and move into um, the issues that are most important when people are voting. And obviously this, this data is generally scarce. Um, it's difficult to sort of... Um, understand what's important to people. So on the left, you see issues that were generally important for the 2014 election, um, which are including 
reduction of terrorism, citizens' rights, climate change, migration, and on the right um, to the youth in particular, um, again, environmental protection, migration and integration, uh, employment and education. Um, but we thought it might be actually easier to set the agenda from you guys. So try out the Slido again. Um, and you can put in one or two answers if you want. What you really care about when you're voting in this election or in whatever election if you're not voting in this one. Yeah. <laughs> just wondering what the difference is. If we, yeah, I would say if we if we combined the word environment and climate change, um, that seems to be generally the biggest concern, but also digitalization, nationalism, human rights. Um, and so a lot of you so far have mentioned, um, a lot of us on the panel have mentioned Fridays for Future. Um, so we'll maybe turn to climate change as an important issue here. Um and so, yeah, a lot of you know about the Fridays for Future movement, pulling out a lot of um, thousands of followers here in Berlin, but also across Europe and a lot of different cities to protest so global inaction against climate change. And it's um, sort of hero, um, this Swedish girl, Greta Thunberg, um, famously said that uh, a reason for the movement was that the adults, the older generation, are failing miserably to act against climate change and that the younger generation is not being heard and this is the way that they can make themselves heard by striking. Um, and so I have a few questions uh, to put to the panel on this. And the first would be um, what direct action you would be taking um, as an MEP to address this, this issue, to address climate change. And the second is if this issue is, as Greta says, truly a generational conflict. So is it necessarily a conflict between the younger generation who feels that their voices aren't being heard and that this issue needs further action now and the older generation that believes that they know better and that the younger, the younger generation is sort of wasting their time. Um, Caroline, do you want to start? Yeah, sorry. I was, <laughs> I was a lot of information focusing on the other, on the other things as well. Okay, um, what I would do as an MEP to change. So uh, within our program, I always I'm a huge fan of our program because it was written on a pan-European level, um, and in our program we want to um, create a, a tax on CO two emissions. Um, we want to move towards a circular economy, and uh, create a Kreislauf Gutesiege. Don't have the English word right now, um, and also change the way the European Union finances agriculture. Um, so work towards more to small, smaller um, um, agricultural farms as well as um, more sustainable ones. Um, and yeah, I think those are the biggest things that I would focus on if I were an MEP. But the CO two tax number one. So I think we are unified in the CO2 tax. Um, we have been advocating on the European level for, I think, more than 10 years now for what we call a Green New Deal. So the idea is that we need investments, especially in the poorer regions, to foster economy. And we would want to see that, especially with the economy that helps us to slow down climate change. So that would be building up renewables, we can only do that on a European level anyways, because we need a bigger net where we have solar, we have wind, we have water power, 
and if we have a good network, basically the energy can flow, then we can manage the transition, I think, by 2050 for sure. We need to invest in mobility. So first thing is to tax the kerosene, so the fuel for the planes, because that isn't taxed. Electricity for the trains is taxed, which is basically just, I mean, making flying cheaper rather than giving it the actual cost it has for the environment and for every one of us. Um, that is part of it that also we can just do on a European level. Just to give you one example that shows how ridiculous it is at the moment, there has been a night train from Berlin to Brussels. A train I would love to take. And why did they stop it? Because the Belgians just slightly increased the, the fee for, for the German train to go there. And then the German bahn said, oh, but then we're not going any longer. Now, basically, I have to take flights, which I don't want to do. But there is no other way to go. And there are so many examples also when trains want to go from one country to the others. And it's a different railway system. So basically, they have to disembark at the border and to go into another train and then to keep on moving. Apparently, there was no problem in building roads across the borders. So also there, I think we, we need to think differently on how um, we want to have our European transportation system. Um, I think what would be most important to make things moving is that we come up with the climate law. So basically, a climate law means we would define on a European level who needs to do what until when? So which sector, which industry needs to do what until when, which nation state? But one where then either citizens, the best thing would be citizens, could then sue them if they don't. Because at the moment, it's just voluntarily and apparently it didn't work in the last 20 years, so I don't see why it should work in the next 20 years. And if you ask a question whether it's a generational thing, I mean, in my party there are many people above 60 that had been fighting their whole life for climate change and to have a different understanding about nature. But what I think I slightly see as a generational thing is, and I also see that with the German government and also with the Commission, European Commission to some extent, there's still the idea that we can have, I mean, all these climate protection policies as long as they don't hurt our economy. And I think our generation says, if we don't get them done, there won't be much of an economy anymore and that maybe I hope Fridays for Future will help to build that awareness that yes the kind of protection measures we need now will hurt they will hurt us because flying to Australia might be the double of the price they will hurt the economy in the beginning because we need a transformation that has to be quick and much quicker than it had to have been if we did it 20 years ago but we can come out of it stronger. And I think that's the story we have to tell. Because if we, in Europe, and that's why you have to do it on European level, if we come up with standards, I mean, every one of these big companies, they know they have to change. What they want is reliable standards so they can shift their business model and they know when they will have bigger earnings again. And they want to be protected against those who can produce under lower, with lower standards and then import into the European Union. So if we come up with these standards on the European level and we protect our markets just by saying, if you, confer, if you are okay with these standards, you can import. If you're not, then you can't. Then this will actually help us come, I mean, drive us of 
pro-climate innovation, but it can only happen on the European level. And that's kind of the, the law thing, because that comes up with reliable standards would be the first thing I think we need. I think, um, okay, so the, there's two questions. The first one, what would, what would um, Podemos or myself do as, a, as an MEP uh, about climate change at the European level? I think um, Caroline was, was saying it very well. It's a, it's a European issue that has to be addressed from a European standpoint, working also at, at a global level because the, you know, the greenhouse gases don't stop at the, at the European border. So, so, so obviously you have, to, you have to have that leading role as the EU on the, on, the, on the international level to work with the other countries to reduce emissions. Um, the Green New Deal, I think, is, a, is, a, is an idea that uh, the, the term was, uh, was, was created in the US, uh, obviously because it's, it's talking about New Deal as a Green New Deal. Um, and uh, when it's applied in Europe, I, I, like the term, I like using the term new green Marshall Plan for Europe because there's, a, there's this sense that you have to put in a lot of uh, public resources to make sure that that transition really takes place. You can't just say, um, let's make business more environmental friendly, let's make uh, more, more awareness be, uh, with, with the people. You need to really change your productive system, you need to change the kind of housing you have, you, you need to change a lot of things to make sure that emissions are, are reduced. Um, at the European level as, as well, you can work with the common agricultural policy to, assume, to assure that um, methane uh, em uh, emissions, which are ten times more, um, uh, uh, ten times more effective in producing climate change, are reduced. So basically, you need to reduce livestock at a, at a European level. It's its consumption as well as its its uh, its production, obviously. So you so you can make sure that that affects as well in in in, in green uh, policies. And also, um, when we talk answering the second question, when we talk about this as a generational problem, I think it's definitely a, a show of a certain transition from um, the general feeling that social questions are about class struggle sometimes, about uh, inequalities between classes, and then this time it's more about really a question of generation, because there's no class difference when in, if, the, if the world comes to an end, for, for, to, to say it somehow, right? So, so it's more of a, a generational thing. And I think uh, Fridays for Future, the fact that that, that Swedish girl says, goes on TV and says, and everyone sees it around the world, says uh, to, to, our old, uh, to our older, uh, to our parents, basically, you need to do something because you are governing now. You need to do something to, assure, to ensure our future. I think that's a, a kind of a, a, a shift in, in focus for policy uh, because from the... From the um, from a more class struggle kind of thing to a more generational struggle um, sense, but also and this is the last the last thing. Um, I think it's important also to uh, bear in mind the the importance of of inequality related with climate change. Um, when you um, when you see when I mean when you think about the fact that the main polluters uh, around the globe are are corporations rather than states i mean obviously corporations produce and emit because there's demand from people but but it's the mainly the corporations that have to take that have to be forced to uh, to stop emitting so much well then you can take that in, into account as well um, when thinking about states and, and corporations um there's this phrase by gandhi which i which i, I always uh, like to remember that, uh, when he said the world has enough for everyone's needs but not everyone's greed so it's a matter of also of greed acting towards uh, more emissions uh, um, relating to, to climate change. And then this, this last thing, that this, this phrase by, uh, by George Monbiot, he once said, reflecting on growth as the main um, political, um, the main political um, 
um, reference for uh, for how for how well an economy is doing. He once said, uh, "A continued expansion into the biosphere permits states to avoid addressing issues of distribution and social justice. The promise of perpetual growth dulls our anger about widening inequality. By trampling over nature, we avoid treading on the toes of the powerful." So basically, what he was saying was, when you think about climate change, think about inequality as well. It's very important. Um, let's hear very quickly from Wojtek, and then we're going to open it up for questions from the audience. Yeah, I think we, we all see it uh, very, very similarly. Uh, we need to have uh, the CO2 tax, uh, no one-use uh, plastics, and the uh, circular economy is the key. Um, but for this, uh, we need um, political decisions, and uh, these political decisions must uh, be on the EU level. Because if you leave it for the national governments, then the progress will be much slower. But uh, for these uh, political decisions, you need also the support of the civic society, because without this, the politicians will never do these decisions. And what I really like to see are these uh, movements or demonstrations, or how to call it, of very young people on high schools. I know that in Germany, it's, uh, it's quite... Uh, Broad and often, uh, and even in Czech Republic, you can see the students uh, coming out from schools and uh, demonstrating against the climate change and ag actually against the uh, the politicians who are not acting. And what I think is also positive is that uh, these uh, movements could uh, attract uh, young people to politics across Europe. So now we would like to open up to you guys, get your questions. Um, when you ask your question, would you tell us your name and also your top issue for the upcoming election? That'd be great. Okay. So we have someone collecting maybe. And you're welcome to address your question either to one panelist or to everyone. Maybe we collect two, three questions and then. Um, hello. Yep. Um, my name is Imre and my top issue for the next election is making sure that the EU actually stays together. Um, so um, you're from parties which are very much pro-European and I get the sense that at least some of you would like to see more political integration eventually coming to the point where we might have a European state. Um, what I also hope is that none of you are under any illusions about how difficult that's going to be. Because the, as one example, the United, for the United States to become one nation, it took two bloody wars. I'm not saying the same has to happen in Europe. But one of the most crucial constituting elements of a common polity is a common identity. Now, what is going, my question is simple, what is going to be the basis of this European identity? And I don't just want to hear human rights and democracy, because identity is not just law alone. Maybe one more question before we hear from the panelists? Maybe. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, hi, I'm Paul, and um, yeah, my most important issue for the elections is a common stand on uh, foreign affairs and especially development questions. And uh, I think, Hannah, you raised an excellent point in um, kind of pointing out that 
the green leftist parties are the natural antidote to the uh, rise of Euroscepticism. So I want to ask you, Wojtek, um, from a more conservative party, do you think that like the polarization in general is going to uh, increase uh, kind of like in the USA and also in the Czech Republic and um, in the EU that it's going to be harder for more conservative parties and how you want to tackle that issue? Wojtek, do you want to respond right away? Yeah, I can try. Uh, you know, I'm not sure if, uh, if the polarization even can can increase even more because um, when you see the Czech Republic, the problem actually came and the polarization increased uh, when we when we decided to have the direct uh, presidential election. And uh, these we have like parliamentary democracy and uh, the, the direct election is not... Um, It's not the right constitutional thing for parliamentary democracy because uh, the parliament needs to be uh, well with uh, with the president, and that's not happening when you have the direct democracy, and also the uh, direct vote for president. It's like a TV show for people, and it's really polarizing the the, the society. But it's not, uh, and you can see this the same in in USA. And actually, you can see the same in Austria when there was a presidential election. It was a bit similar as well, that the nation was actually split into two parts. Um, I think as long as we don't find the topics, actually unifying the, the nation and the climate change might be one of these topics the polarization will just continue. Does anyone want to respond to the first question? Yes. <laughs> um, I think this question is asked a lot. Um, you said there were two bloody wars in the States. I think we've had two bloody wars, world wars, and I think that's more than an, enough. Um, I think it's interesting that it always comes down to a common identity um, and that we... To, in order to form a federal, like a federal union or a federal state, that um, common identity is required, because um, the the initial idea of the European Union is united in diversity, and um, I, I I don't want to say that there aren't cultural or socioeconomic differences, and that this is like a that there is a lack of yes, there is maybe a lack of common identity, but I think it's more important not to focus on identity politics in general, but more towards what what's important, what what goals are important and how to work towards them together. And I think we've, Volt has already in a way managed that to come together to say these are, these are the issues in the world, the global issues in the world, and we need to solve them together beyond um, what my, where my heritage is from or where I'm from and what uh, my problems locally are. This is where this is what we need to go for, and this is what we need to solve. So, I think yeah. I saw a lot of questions, so maybe we collect three more before we give you the chance to answer to the others. Also, um, see a lot in the back. Hello. 
Um, I, I'm going to combine our questions because they're somewhat similar. Um, my name's Emma. Um, <laughs> uh, and for me, I'm very curious about the distributional impacts in this election and what's indicative for the rest of the world, because you've all highlighted the U.S. several times and we've seen some similar issues happening. Um, so I'm curious if you could speak to uh, your thoughts on how to address regional disparities and if we can think also in the generational disparity, a lot of the, the folks that we're hearing issue, partisan issue with right now, are of an older generation that feels behind. It doesn't mean that they can be negated. Similarly, we're getting the same narrative from regions of Europe, particularly in Eastern Europe, that are further back in the development in some ways, development I put in quotation marks, and are um, oriented around old structures of working and don't have the same economic power as some of the leaders in Europe. So I want to get a sense from you as to how you plan through your platforms to negotiate this, both from the age context, because we've touched on that, but also from regional disparities, because I think that's crucial for... Moving us forward. Your top issue, and Gaurav, did that capture your question? You can ask. I can ask last. Mm, maybe if I just um, um, put forward a similar question, I'm Martin, and my top um, issue here is reimagining the European cooperation relations that we maintain right now. And my question is that even in our current political climate of change, you all voiced opinions about some need to change the European Union and move uh, maybe to a more integrated model. But what kind of incremental steps that uh, can be taken, in your opinion, to make that shift? Because... Uh, all change has to start somewhere, and where do you concretely want to start? Okay, one more question. Ideally, maybe a woman. There. My name is uh, Ramani, and I'm interested in the subject of development policies uh, uh, in the third world, and especially in Africa. How do you see that in the future, changing policies, and especially um, in the finance, financement of development projects in Africa? Because we know there is so much of corruption and with the governments there. And the second subject is uh, sale of weapons. How do you see that? It's so important in my eyes. And your top issue for the upcoming election? Uh, immigration. I would just like to take them from back to, to front, if that is fine. Um, the sale of weapons. Um, this would be becoming a much more pressing issue in the coming five years because European countries are starting to um, develop, produce, and then also sell weapons together in joint, um, joint projects. And we've seen that just two weeks ago when we had the debate with Saudi Arabia between France, Germany and Great Britain. Um, what made me furious in that debate, I have to be frank, is that we are debating whether there is a moral problem with um, exporting to Saudi Arabia, which I think there totally is, and having that on, on one side of the balance and the other would be European solidarity. But there are common European standards for the export of weapons and they are really strict and they deny every kind of export to countries like Saudi Arabia. So one is human rights. The other one is um, being involved in regional conflict. And the third one is Völkerrecht, which I'm lacking the English word now to explain. Uh, hmm? 
No, it's not human rights, it's Völkerrecht, it's a different international law, I'm really sorry. And the third one is inter so if they're not in, in conformity with the international law. And Saudi Arabia is failing on all three parts. So actually, who is breaking with the European solidarity? On my point of view, that's France and Great Britain. But what the example shows us is that we only have these regulations on European level, but obviously they are having different interpretations in every nation of these regulations. And I think if we want to move forward with the common security policy and also with developing and having joined this kind of joint um, defense projects and weapon projects, we have to come up with very similar standards across all Europe and in all countries. Because the idea that you could negotiate this for every project anew, and when then there's a new government in one of the countries, you have to start again. I mean, this is not going to work. Development policy. Um, I think the biggest challenge I see at the moment on European level is that we are starting to make, make development aid as a political bargaining tool in our migration policy, which I think is very dangerous. So basically the idea is if you take back the migrants, you get development aid. If you don't take back your migrants, then we don't give you any more development aid. We are even doing that for, human, for humanitarian aid, where I think it's even more of a disaster because that one is not to be politicized. I know that there are, I mean, always political objectives with development aid, which I think is okay, but taking back your migrants and other migrants that went through your country to our country shouldn't be the reason. And we are currently negotiating on the European level the new budget for seven years, also the foreign policy instrument. Um, and we as a Green Party are very strict that we want to keep the European instrument on democracy and human rights, which gives all the European embassies the possibility to work not only with the government, but to have a special fund that is directly given to civil society that promotes human rights and democracy in the countries. So we don't have the corruption problem when we transfer it to many of the um, governments. They were trying to take it back. So the commission idea was not to have it anymore. And the European Parliament was fighting it back in. And then we will have, see, have to see after the election whether it stays. But that, I think, is one important tool for the delegations. The incremental steps. I think the first one would be to give the EU a proper budget so it can have taxes. Because at the moment, basically, the budget of the EU is what member states give to the EU. So if the EU could have some taxes, like the tax on CO2 or the tax on, on, the, on the plane fuel, that would be ideas where EU could have a known budget. Then I think we need to strengthen the European Parliament because that's a democratically elected heart of the European Union. So it also have to come up with its own laws and its own proposals, which it can't at the moment. And the third one is that we have to do many more things in majority voting. So in the um, European Council, where all the member states are, very important aspects always have to decide. I mean, everyone has to um, be in accordance that it passes. And there we have to go more towards majority because at the moment, everyone kind of egoistically blocks decisions which hampers also the idea of European solidarity. Then, and now with the regional dispar disparities across Europe. Um, from my point of view, um, we need to do two things which I think are possible already in the current state of the European Union. I mean, we can do much more if we have more integration, but even in the current system, I think we can do two things. One is in terms of a social, to move more towards social Europe or towards a social union. 
Social policies and also social benefits are a national thing, but what the European Union can do is it can define minimum standards. So, for example, it could say, like we do it with anti-discrimination laws at the moment already, it could say every country needs to have a basic um, a minimum wage that is enough to kind of for everyone to survive. It could say everybody, every country needs to have a certain standard of its health system that everybody can avail to. It can say we need um, Arbeitslosenversicherung. Um, unemployment, every country needs to have unemployment insurance and every country needs to have a rent for the elderly that is sufficient for them to survive. And then if the European Union comes up with these standards, again, European citizens can take their governments to court if they don't do it. Which is what we in Germany, for example, did with health insurance that was more expensive for women. And there was the idea of equality enshrined in the anti-discrimination leg legislation, and we changed it to going to the European court. So I think that is one way. And the other one is we already have this regional, like EFREN, ASF, so these uh, budgets. I think we need to do more and understand it as a redistribution, like we do it in German with Germany with the Länderfinanzausgleich, between the poorer and the richer regions. Because the richer regions are so rich because they are, I mean, they are just getting all the financial power and the human resources from other regions. And I think we need to transfer something back. And I would just like to have a short also remark on the political or the identity of the European Union because I really find this a fascinating question. Um, I kind of go with you that we, I mean, we need the European Union because we need certain policies that can only be made on the European level. But that is understanding why we need Europe. But I think we also need to feel it. And that's where I think the identity part comes in. Um, one part of the identity, especially for those, I, the generation of my parents and above, is overcoming war. I, I grew up in the German-French border region. Even when I was young, that was a big thing. Because, I mean, the grandparents, they had been fighting each other and now they're having all these friendship ceremonies and they are becoming friends. Um, we, many countries were fighting for democracy. We shouldn't forget that about our East European neighbors. Fighting for democracy, democratic rights, and also basic freedoms. And human rights isn't just about law. That's also about just rights and things you can do in your life. Um, then another aspect is just being stronger through cooperation. And I think the next aspect that has to come is solidarity, which um, comes together with the social Europe. And I mean, you said united in diversity. Yeah, but I think that's part of the identity. You can be diverse and you can still be united. And that's a big difference to what I see in many countries around Europe at the moment. So I would really like to see one that we strengthen friendship programs like we have it with the French-German. We did, never did that, for example, with France and Poland. And the relationship is different at the moment. And the second one is to invest strongly in creating a culture and public sphere that is really European. Because I think that is lacking at the moment. It's a bit of a challenge because of the language. But I think we can try. Okay, so um, with... Taking taking on the same the same question again because I think it's one of the main the main ones the the identity thing. Um, if you look, this is a question for for my country as well. For for Spain right now, we're having a lot of uh, you know the tensions with Catalonia and the, the the problems with identity with having them at home as well. And um, I think in general you have the same kind of problems because generally, if you look at uh, European history, 
identities in countries often occur as um, against someone. For, for example, France uh, ended up having a, a pretty strong um, national identity because it was confronted with with Germany, right? So that's that would be that would be an example. In in this case, I think with Europe, um, if you want to confront with someone, if we want to compare with someone to to create a European identity, I would say, and I. I might be called a Euro, Eurocentrist uh, for saying this, but I really think Europe is the best place, to, the, the the best place to live on the, on this whole planet. I mean, I I know Americans often say, often say uh, America is the best country in the world. Well, let's say Europe is the best country in the world. Take any European country, you'll think uh, I'd rather they live here than anywhere anywhere else. I think that's a that's a pretty good that's a pretty good um, idea in the first place. But also, you have to think why is that. That's that's because the welfare state was invented in uh, in Europe, and and because um, democracy was invented in Europe. And th this again is very Eurocentric, and you can find examples all over the world. If you're more multiculturalist, you can find other examples. But you have to talk about your own thing, and your own thing is Europe. And you have to think what's so good about Europe that I want to feel that I'm part of. So really, that's that's I th that's I think a way to uh, to go forward. And I think it's very important as well because the tensions with Europe are. Um, I mean, with 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 political parties inside Europe, uh, sometimes go in the way of saying I don't want more Europe because I have a, a political interest in destroying Europe as a union, or um, because I have the kind of ultra conservative view of Europe, so, such as uh, such as for instance uh, Viktor Orban in, in in Hungary. He says we have to go, we have to find Christianity as the basis of Europe. I mean, you know, that's that's difficult because it basically excludes everyone that's not Christian. So it's a bit of a problem. Of course, Christianity is one is at the roots of of Europe. Christian values, maybe, that are, are then incorporated into uh, into law constitutions or, or just morality. But you can't take a religion as a basis for a for a political unity. So I think I think really, if you get down to um, material reasons, which then have a sort of a psychological and political vision of, uh, of, of material reasons and then you can you can think why Europe is so great and should be and it should be uh, defended in that sense as well you were talking about um, unemployment benefits if if any unemployed in Europe could go and receive a, an unemployment benefit that had a European flag on it that would be something that you would immediately relate to and say okay Europe is protecting me um, the lemma for Brexit, for Brexit was take back control. They wanted to take back control over their lives and their material reality, but because they, they were thinking that Europe was stealing 350 million pounds from them a week. Obviously, that's that's false. But but you know the 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 thought behind was uh, somebody stealing from me. So if 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 on the other hand you're a, you're a citizen in Europe and you're unemployed and you each month you receive an unemployment benefit with a with a European flag on it, you will be thinking Europe is protecting me. So that's also a way to build uh, identity. With the question of uh, institutional reforms, with it, which I think has a lot of uh, a lot to do as well with the um, with the identity thing, because of course, if you think about Europe and all you think about is bureaucracy and um, Germany screwing everyone else, you know, German elites. Sorry, because that's that's the that's. And that's an important difference. Then, of course, you got, then, then of course you're going to think I don't I don't want that kind of Europe. I want another kind of of Europe that that's truly united. So you need the kind of uh, reforms that produce real uh, real union. So you need um, 
you need a you need more democracy you need a, a stronger european parliament you need maybe a direct election of, of this super president uh, figure for the for the eu you need more community method above intergovernmental method you need to think about the eu above states uh, you need a majority above unanimity to make sure that no no one can veto um, if you take the union seriously you need a real and complete and symmetric economic integration you need fiscal unity you need euro bonds you need uh, mutual uh, debt mutualization you need a greater eu budget um, you need a European Central Bank that's accountable, appointed and controlled by the European uh, Parliament. You need a change in its objectives so that it doesn't only take into, in, into account inflation, but also maybe full employment or green standards. Uh, you need the kind of reforms that make Europe into a, a, a real political union that you can be proud of, basically. Okay, before I turn to this side of the panel, I would like to collect more questions with a view to the time. Maybe if you could keep your questions short. Again, Last your round name, of questions. priority, uh, FedEx. Over there, and then I, you've in the back have had a question there for me. Hi, good evening. Thanks for coming. Uh, my name is Guillermo. I'm a Master of International Affairs student here. Uh, my main concern is the rise of nationalism. And my question relates to uh, last night's European Council and Brexit, because unfortunately it will not be avoided, we learned yesterday, um, as far as the European elections are concerned. And I wanted to know whether you think um, giving that extension was the right thing to do, and whether the European Union is being too lenient uh, on the UK, or whether to the country um, it should be uh, uh, much stricter. Um, and just a tiny little detail, I'd like each one of you to give me the name of a special legislative procedure, because you're going to be MEPs, and that's the sort of stuff you'll be um, dealing with. Thank you. Okay, there's been a question in the back for a while. Maybe you get that. Do you mean that an example of, of a policy that was approved by that? Or no, if you can just quote one and explain a little bit what it is. Quote what exactly? The, the one special legislative procedure. Okay, your question. Okay, my question. Uh, hi, I'm Julius. I'm doing the Master of International Affairs here. My um, main topic is also the rise of nationalism. And uh, quite personally, I would not like to live in an EU where Hungary is still a part. Um, is there a, what is the position of your party on that? Okay, one more question, or do we open to the panel? I see one there. Um, and your issue. Um, hi, um, my name is Tanvir. I'm a student of Master's in Public Policy at the Hertie School of Governance. I would like to thank all of you for coming out, and specifically I would like to thank Marco for quoting Gandhi. It's very nice when a Westerner quotes an Indian person. I was wiping some tears of joy over there. And um, my question to you is, um, the first impression that uh, anybody can make on a voter right now is conservative because of the existing climate of Euroscepticism. So the new voters who are going to show up are going to be conservative, in my opinion, because what they are exposed to is Euroscepticism. And for them to make a contrast between the present Euroscepticism and then um, a pro-European a pro stance, I believe it would take, unfortunately, a couple of elections. It's not going to happen right now, is my opinion. Those who are concerned about the environment will automatically vote green. Everybody else might move towards conservatives and probably on towards the right. So my question to you is, uh, first of all, do you agree with me? And second of all, if you think uh, this is the case, how does a party that stands in the middle look at itself? Because with all due respect, we sitting here right now, uh, educated liberal elite in the city are not going to determine elections. It is the people who are sitting in the outskirts in rural Bavaria and rural Brandenburg who are going to determine elections. And those guys do not see the, way, see the world the way we see it. 
So uh, I would just like to pick your brain on that. Anybody on yeah, the panel? Thank you. Let's, let's answer in a, in a succinct way because we're almost out of time. I'm not sure if I remember all the questions, <laughs> but uh, uh, what was the first one? <laughs> uh, I've heard something about rise of nationalism and I've heard something about Hungary, right? And, you know, I think that the question about Hungary is uh, pretty connected to, to the previous question because uh, you need to... Uh, you. I think you shouldn't just exclude Hungary from the EU and uh, I think you need to you need to find a, a solution how to uh, how to lower the differences between the regions in in EU and what's important that uh, we need to find this solution at the current state of EU because so far the answer of EU to all its problems was uh, more integration. And uh, I'm also in favor of this solution. I would like to see Europe as uh, a federalization or whatever. Uh, but uh, we are not at this point now. The idea of uh, federal Europe is, uh, I think, that across the EU since we didn't find an agreement on the Constitution of Europe. That was the point where we could clearly see that we are not able to agree on the basic uh, values and, yeah, that we are not, uh, not able to agree on the, on the basic values of, of, the, of the Constitution. And uh, we could uh, call this maybe constitutional crisis. But Europe uh, can see now more crises. We can see political crises. It's the migration crisis we are uh, probably still facing. And we can see also the possible economical crisis because uh, we have managed, or especially the um, uh, Eurozone countries, uh, uh, managed to save Greece, but uh, EU would probably, or the Eurozone would probably not be able to save uh, Greece together with Portugal and Spain and all the south of Europe, which has problem with uh, its uh, national debts as well. And uh, so it's, um, I don't think we are talking about... Um, about uh, that we are not talking about it that uh, Europe is uh, treated by another exit. The Czech Republic is great candidate candidate for another exit. We call it Czech exit. And uh, but I don't think we would ever leave the EU because the Czech people knows mathematics and we we know that we would be pretty poor without EU. And that's the basic argument for most of uh, of the Czech people. Even though we saw the low support if, uh, in EU, in Czech Republic, I don't think we would ever, ever, ever leave. But um, the question um, about uh, identity was, uh, was actually pretty right. Uh, but uh, we need to answer this question uh, within the 
current state. And I think that the best thing we are doing for some European identity is actually Erasmus. Because I personally became uh, or started to feel like a European uh, after Erasmus. Before Erasmus, I was very in favor of EU, but uh, I didn't know what uh, European identity is. On Erasmus, I get to know what is it. Yeah, let's hear from one more candidate and then we're, we're over time. And then we have a nice reception so you guys can continue the conversation there. Yeah, I remembered your question in the back. It was about uh, Brexit and what happened yesterday. I think um, we're generally in favor of Britain remaining and um, not at all costs, not at the cost of the European principles, but I think it's good that they have an extension um, to decide on this as long as it doesn't... Um, I think they have the best deal that they got and I think they're aware of that and that's why it's so difficult. And at the moment, I think... Everything is quite open of what what's what the results are going to be, and there might even be a second referendum. I mean, it's taken them three years. If they can't manage to really get it done now, then I think there is even a possibility of a second referendum, and I think people are very fed up. So I think it's good that they got an extension. Um, I don't think that they should get... Uh, that the EU should be more... Um, how do you say? Um... I think that, yeah, they got the best deal that they got. So, yeah. Um, and you were talking about directives and all these things. Um, I think what is most important to us are um, institutional reforms within our party because we think there needs to be institutional changes and that would mean that tr treaties would have to be changed. And I know that's a big step, but uh, for most of the... Um, things that we want in part of EU reform. So um, initiate um, that the parliament can initiate legislation, that there's majority voting within the councils instead of consensus. All of these things would, if you're asking me as an MFP, would need a change in treaty. Yeah. I'm not really good with the concrete numbers of directives, so <laughs> I avoided it that way. Um, and then there was another question about Hungary uh, or Uh, that you would prefer if they were out. I think um, I think any other exit of any member state would be catastrophic, and I think every member state is aware that they're that we're that it's good that they're in the union and that we're we're integrated in a way so um, so we're integrated in a oh god I'm losing my words um, we're so integrated that the next step is more political integration, and for that we need institutional change. And the way we look at member states and at each other. And um, yeah, I think any other um, country that would leave the EU would be catastrophic. No worries, I will be brief. Um, just before you leave to the reception, uh, let me just thank you all again for coming. Um, thank you again uh, to the wonderful moderation. Kate and Sophia, and thanks to the panelists. Um, I think we had a quite fruitful discussion, even though um, the panelists were quite aligned most over most over the talk. Uh, even though I think that changed a bit uh, regarding European integration in the end, maybe. Um, so just one thing uh, before I leave uh, leave you with the reception: please vote in the end of May. Uh, please remind your friends. Please remind your family of voting. And uh, don't exclude your 
British friends and uh, British colleagues um, because since yesterday I think they're most likely to vote as well. Okay, thank you again and have a nice evening. Thanks for listening. You can find more on our website at herity-school.org.